Hey there, this is Dave Canise. I'm the creator and host of the Agents of Innovation podcast. I've spent the past 30 years deep inside the global innovation economy at the intersection of brand strategy, design, management consulting, venture capital, product, marketing, and executive recruiting, working with visionaries at hundreds of the world's great companies and the startups on the way to becoming tomorrow's most exciting ones. I've coached hundreds of leaders through job searches, personal branding, and the reinvention of their careers. One of the biggest things I've learned on my journey, products, brands, services, experiences, and technologies that become world-changing, life-changing, and industry-changing only make it from idea to reality because of agents of change. I call them agents of innovation. This podcast was created to introduce you to them. We'll explore their stories and their superpowers, and I hope they inspire you. Thanks for listening. And please reach out if I can help you. You can get me anytime at dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. That's dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. On to the show. Like every other sector of the global economy, the commercial real estate market is also being disrupted by digital technology, elevated customer expectations, and entrepreneurs with innovative startups. Today, tenant experience technology plays a bigger role than ever before, helping transform properties from a physical space into communities that offer real value to the workforce. Chase Garbarino, my guest today, who is the co-founder and CEO of HQO, has been a leader of Boston's innovation economy for the past 10 or more years, first with the creation of American Inno, a digital media and events business is targeted at bolstering the innovation economies of American cities. In Boston, we had Boston Inno, which was a new media organization that chronicled our exploding startup and VC scene in a way that the legacy media couldn't and probably wouldn't. After selling American Inno to advanced publications in 2015, he started on a new adventure with a company that's pivoted through multiple incarnations to become HQO. Welcome, Chase. Great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be on. Hey, when I think of an agent of innovation, um, you know, people who are bringing world and life-changing new products, services, technologies, brands, and companies to life, you are the definition. So extra honor to have you here today. That's nice. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'll try to live up to the agent piece of this. There you go. Um, let's start with, you know, what is HQO? What is it that you guys do as a company? Uh, HQO is a tenant and employee experience platform. So the way we really kind of think about what we're trying to drive is um, what your experience is at the physical workplace. And uh, obviously the physical workplace looks a lot different uh, today than it did uh, before COVID. But um, before COVID, we were kind of fascinated with the experience of, you know, from the time you left your home to the time you got back to your home, um, the, the large role that the physical workplace played in, um, you know, your everyday life uh, as someone who uh, most of us at the time were going in five days a week to the office uh, and uh, we we're doing a lot of the things that throughout our life that were part of our daily routine in and around the office. So we believed that it was this really compelling platform, right, in terms of can we create a better digitally enabled experience to help people be more productive and satisfied in their daily lives, but particularly at work so that they can be more productive. Um, 
and you mentioned American Inno and our last startup really around kind of local community to bolster innovation. You know, we've always been, uh, I think, kind of uh, inadvertently at first and then a little bit more deliberately later, our founding team has always been fascinated with um, economic progress and how you enable people to be more productive and innovative. Um, and the, the physical environment in which we work was a really interesting concept where we saw a lot of pieces of the experience could be significantly better. Um, and then for the folks that uh, own or operate and run uh, the physical workplaces, they've been flying blind for um, centuries, decades, most certainly in terms of data on how people actually use the physical workplace and what the environment can influence in terms of behavior. So when you talk about um, that operating system and the data that um you know, commercial real estate can use, what are some of the key analytics that come up out of that? What are the things that, you know, were lacking before that you're able to provide them now? Yeah, I mean, there's some very basic things, um, you know, coming from other industries and the industries that you and I uh, have worked in and across in our careers. Um, as an outsider to commercial real estate, we found it, I mean, we we're fascinated with some very basic things like, our customers, you know, large institutional real estate owners didn't know how often companies actually use their product. So how often do people come to the building? Um, so there's some very basic stuff in terms of as employees engage with the application, whether it's, you know, we have the ability to make your key card digital and you can swipe into turnstiles or unlock doors on the office suite. Um, you can see how often people come to the property and where they're going within the property. And then you can start to get significantly more uh, rich data on the overall workplace experience where um, if you're booking space, if you're uh, booking an amenity center, if you're engaging with ground level retail, so ordering food or lunch, um, booking a fitness class, whatever it is, uh, all of that happens through a digital platform when you use our product. So you can get um, pretty interesting user behavior data throughout the day as to how people are using using space. And so when you think about how real estate puts CapEx into their properties, it's been very much an art rather than a science. Um, and we think there's a lot of, uh, a lot more science can yield better results for the end user of the property and ultimately better results for the people that own the properties and the employers that, that lease them. So it's almost like having a website was before you had Google Analytics right? Or having kind of your own digital marketing before you had kind of, you know, um, real analytics and numbers behind it to measure what was happening, right? Good analogy to show the difference between the two. A hundred percent. You know, when you're in Google Analytics, you can see the flows of the pages that people visit and where they convert or drop off. Um, same thing when you're moving through a property, right? We describe our mobile application for the end user as a remote control for the property. So uh, engaging with the parking garage and then you get into the turnstile and the lobby and you get up to the 17th floor, whatever it is, um, you can start to see kind of the, the progression of um, how, you know, groups of people ultimately use the property. So exactly like Google Analytics. And one of the things that um, really stuck with me, I had gone to WeWork one day, I was at their headquarters and got a tour and was seeing how that they could disassemble kind of an office environment like Lego 
overnight, mm-hmm. right? Because of their use of analytics, right? They were able to say, hey, this you know, 12-person conference room is used 70% of the time, but only for four people. So right away, we're going to take that and divide it into three and make three rooms and better use that space. Is that the type of thing that you're seeing your customers do with their clients or at least their clients able to do now? Yeah, versions of it for sure. And depending on, we've got a pretty wide range of clients and that will We'll work with very top kind of premium class A landlords where a lot of their tenants are enterprise grade. Um, So working over longer time horizons, but everybody's time horizons, particularly with COVID, but even before COVID, how the internet was changing the way we work, everyone needs more flexibility, right? Um, And so the way that they ultimately commit to TI, as it's called in the industry, tenant improvements, and what they put into the office, they want to be smart about these things. And they really don't have data uh, to inform, you know, what's the ratio of communal space and conference room space that is right for a certain amount of headcount. And taking that even further, coming from the brand world and advertising, you understand this, we should be significantly more targeted and smart about what does it mean in terms of how you use space if you're, say, a technology company that's 250 people compared to a large insurance company that's 50,000 people, right? Um, We all work very differently. Um, And I think we're we're about 1%, maybe not even 1% in, to capturing data at the volume needed to be really, really smart about office automation and kind of intelligence on optimal environment in terms of where we should be working. Um, But what COVID, what we work in COVID combined did was they kind of moved the, the market to care about this, right? The business model has not been broken for most owners of commercial, commercial real estate. Um, and now there's enough pressure that innovation has been introduced and is uh, certainly hit a tipping point, which I think is a very, very good thing. Yeah, it's got to have a lot to do with culture in those organizations, too. I mean, if I look at um, kind of big spaces and what they say about a company, how it thinks, how it views itself, right? You look at kind of the arms race that a lot of industries have. You've got, you know, Nike has a campus. So a lot of other companies in the sports industry all had to have campuses quickly. Um, Google has its Googleplex, you know, Rock Center is there. Salesforce has to put a tower in the middle of San Francisco to show kind of who it is and its ambition. Um, but you also look at kind of its, its culture and how a company might think and operate. And you look at a company like um, you know, Microsoft as an example that was really about fiefdoms for a long time and buildings and kind of little empires and their campus, you know, really was um, how the company thought and operated for many, many years, right? So that culture thing seems to be not only incredibly important from a brand and an employer brand standpoint, but, you know, now you can really add a lot of value to that for, um, you know, the tenant. Yeah, and we we spend a lot of time talking about um, how how much of the physical environment is a reflection of culture, and how much is culture dictated by physical environment. And um, we use a guy named Kurt Lewin, nineteen thirty six. Ultimately, it was called Lewin's Equation, which he he was kind of the the founder of social psychology and coined the term group dynamics, but 
basically uh, what he came up with was very simple equation b equals a function of p and e which he meant behavior is a function of the person in environment right and what he recognized uh and and sought out was um people are greatly influenced uh by the environment around them in fact you're an outlier if um you tend to be in an environment both around other people as well as the physical environment and you can um, not necessarily behave in a way that lots of other people behave, which tends to be uh, influenced by the environment and others around them. And so we think a lot about um, how the physical environment drives certain behaviors. And when you think about what kind of leadership and management at a company ultimately is trying to do is uh, orchestrate and drive the right behaviors from people. So I think it's a, it's, we're going to have some fascinating studies coming out of COVID in terms of uh, the, the variables and people are significant and we spend a tremendous amount of time and resources on um, assessing those variables, figuring out which ones from a culture standpoint fit our different companies and what we need out of the people. Um, we don't spend nearly as much time in terms of assessing the variables of an environment that ultimately impact the people. And I think um, we're, we're going to get a lot of data on what happens when the environment in which people work is completely outside of the company's hands. Obviously, uh, lots of people working from home. The company has no influence on their work environment uh, in that sense. And um, it also introduces significantly more variables because everybody's environment is different, right? So um, we think from a culture perspective, we ultimately view ourselves, you know, we're not really a real estate technology business. Um, we're very much uh, in the business of uh, workplace experience and how we can create digital tools to help influence the environment to make people more engaged and productive, which uh, is good for the employee and it's good for the employer. And ultimately, if you don't, if you own the box it happens in, that will be good for you too. A couple things to dig into in there. Um, first of all, I was trying to diagram the function um, that Kurt Lewin put together and remember how to do that, which mm -hmm. I think I got an F on right now. Um, cool. But um, I think if you look at environments that people have been in during COVID, they've actually been very democratized, haven't they? Because right, the kind of cliche Zoom background that everybody has or Teams background, um, whether real or, you know, a drop-in image almost looks the same for everyone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it feels like that has kind of fundamentally been um, level set in a lot of ways. But, you know, that's going to change because people are all now sort of going back to office, um, either gladly or begrudgingly, depending. Mm -hmm. So you guys are probably seeing quite a bit about that, about, you know, hey, people can't wait to get back or employers can't wait to bring their people back. But there's probably a very, very different set of behaviors that are starting to happen there. Yeah. And we have what's fascinating is we have over 100 of the Fortune 500 um, using our platform directly or indirectly through the landlords that are our customers. And um, through those relationships, every single one of these big employers is, you know, obsessive about um, employee experience and engagement. Um, it's still a relatively new category in terms of sophistication and how they think about it. Um, but 
needless to say, one thing Fortune 500 companies do not lack is surveys. And so they have surveyed um, all of their employees ad nauseum on what they want out of the office and uh, their work routines and all that. And some of the fascinating patterns are that you know, most people want optionality. They want to be able to come into the office. Um, when they come into the office, they want to be able to have a dedicated space. So the concept of hoteling and um, temporary space uh, is not really popular. Um, but they also want flexibility in the sense that if they they want to skip the commute uh, one, two, three, four days a week, whatever the number is, depending on who you are, um, they want that too. So what's fascinating is employers and real estate groups, less so for the real estate groups, but they are they are in a bit of a tough situation because you're saying, okay, you want flexibility on how, where, when you work, um, but you also want dedicated space, right? So it's kind of like to have one's cake and eat it too. Um, so the coordination problems are pretty heavy. So let's say a company comes out and says, you know, we're going to do three days a week uh, required in office uh, and you're a product and engineering team and half the team does Monday, Wednesday, half the team does Wednesday through Friday. You're missing the end goal of getting your people together. So then it becomes, okay, well, your team has to coordinate together. Immediately the flexibility goes out the window because now you're beholden to your manager. So I can empathize with a lot of the, you know, the challenges that these employers are having because they're trying to meet their employees, right, on um, what they're looking for. But the the other consistent theme in the data is that 80% of top performers want to be back in the office. So there's something to be said for uh, someone that wants to get up, get out and go to work that... Uh, seems to correlate with good performance. No kidding. 80% of top performers want to be back in the office. That's individuals and people, right? Wow. That's incredible. I hadn't mm-hmm. heard that one yet. So that the themes you've talked about here, this optionality, flexibility, and kind of dedicated space, they all seem to kind of conflict with each other quite a bit, right? Yes. It's, it almost means that to do this properly and to actually you know make their employees happy around terms that didn't exist a year and a half ago, kind of, you know, negotiating or renegotiating a situation that didn't exist. Um, they almost have to have more space now the way it yeah. would seem, right? It, it's some of, some of these groups and, you know, we've been talking to some large banks and some groups where due to wall street and certain things, they're trying to cost cut. So easy, uh, expense line item during a, global pandemic when people aren't necessarily in the office or some people aren't in the office is real estate expenses. And then they're getting the feedback back that uh, employees want dedicated space and they want more amenities and things like that if they're going to be required to come back, which they are. Um, so it, it is challenging. And what we're, what we're seeing is the companies um, that seem to be handling the best, and you talked about employees being happy, um, what's fascinating is that the companies that are almost, um, one, they're, they're not being clear enough about expectations and return to office planning, um, and they're doing it in order to try to cater to the employee base, actually have employees that seem to be the most upset when they share their data with us. 
Um, a lot of employees that are working from home say that they feel disengaged and not supported, but then they also say they don't want to come into the office. Um, so I think what we always believed, and we're a smaller company, so I, I can't totally um, map our philosophies to our clients because uh, they're significantly larger than us. We have 150 people. Um, we always had a one day a week work from anywhere policy that seemed incredibly progressive pre-COVID. Uh, <laughs> and, and people were like, wow, by that. And um, it was a reality of life where it's like, we all know when you're buried in emails or you're trying to put together a deck, uh, you know, our largest team is engineering when you're writing code, whatever it is concentration work um, sometimes does not benefit from open office layouts, right? When people can come up and distract you and grab you and things like that. So the work from anywhere policy was very much an acknowledgement of maybe there's space at the office, whether it's like a telephone booth or something like that, where you can concentrate and just kind of get dialed in. Um, but we trust you. We believe you're an adult. If you want to uh, find a better place to do that by all means. Um, but we do believe everything we do is team oriented. So we do believe in kind of office first and being with your team. So um, I think a lot of people are going to kind of net out in a similar place. Nine to five is relatively arbitrary, right? Motion ain't progress. We've all worked with people that came in first, left last, and you're not totally sure what they got done. Um, and then there are people who are efficient with their time. So I think we want to get away from time being the pure variable of work and more about output, right? Like that's kind of uh, ultimately what we're trying to drive towards. Yeah. I used to work with a guy on that time story who around 4.45 every day would go microwave a giant cup of tea, um, you know, and over microwave it so that it was steaming. He'd leave his desk light on, his computer open and this steaming mug of tea to make it look like he was still in the office and he was gone by 4.59 every day. But everyone thought the light's on, the tea is steeping and steaming. He must still be here somewhere. That guy really busts his ass. You know? He really, like, he's here all night. And, you yeah. know, that tea was nasty. Um, you know, you talk about behavior being a function of people and environment. And I would imagine... I know it's happened with me, myself, and a lot of people I work with, um, clients as well, is that behaviors have fundamentally changed over the past year, right? Um, being able to have quiet, dedicated space uh, and having to sacrifice that to go back into, you know, an open environment um, in many ways is good. But also, same thing, you, you don't necessarily have that quiet space unless the company has thought of that and provided that, right? So they're really going to have to be flexible in many ways. And when you think about commercial real estate, it's not necessarily thought of as an agile, flexible, fast industry that, re, you know, looks at analytics and data and responds quickly um, and, and makes adjustments, right? No, that has not been their, their MO to date. It has been uh, uh, long leases. And I believe uh, someone once said location, location, location. So um, that has to change. And it's interesting, you see this kind of divergence of um, folks that are gonna, gonna hang their hat on the old ways. Um, a lot of some space is very much commoditized, right? So um, if, if you're gonna kind of assume that everything's gonna go back to the way it was, then you're gonna face the challenge and the risk of 
you know, a building is a building and uh, there's some basic things you need out of it. Um, you're, you kind of face a very large problem from a differentiation of product perspective. Um, whereas if you, if you lean into the challenging work, but, um, you know, we think it's certainly valuable and gonna, gonna make the winners win big of understanding the nuances of how environment can work for different types of companies. I mean, just look at the explosion of say lab space in Boston, right? Obviously significant and obvious differences in what's needed there, um, but there's there's lots of nuances around what type of work people are doing and how environment can enable that. And if you take the approach of uh, just as advertising had to do, right, it was hard to go from traditional to digital and programmatic and that that whole journey. Um, but it's obviously become significantly more effective from a um, in terms of where your ad dollars are going and effectiveness and um, real estate can do the same thing. Uh, the product and the category itself can be significantly more effective if you kind of follow um, the trend and the patterns that other industries had to go through first and apply it. Uh, we think there's significantly more value that they can prove that they drive um, and really speak to HR. So when you think about office space and workspace, it's very much uh, it should be a product and a, an expense of HR to help attract, engage, and retain employees, but they just don't think that way. Um, and they're starting to. Like WeWork has certainly pushed the world to think that way. And a lot of the, you know, these are smart people. Um, they certainly understand the value of data. They're, you know, it's a financial industry. So um, it's very different data and it's going to take a while to collect at scale and then um, make into intelligence, but it's certainly headed that way. So there's probably a couple of things that will help drive that. One is um, you talked about who in the company kind of owns employee experience and engagement and the data that comes out of that, right? Is that an HR function that it rolls up to or does it go through ops? Does it go through finance? Kind of where do all these things lie mm. and how will they influence you know the organization and get that to change? Yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, at the at the top of the market, the, um, you know, the enterprise grade fortune 500, 1000, um, they naturally, as these companies do, they have committees for everything. Um, and the the workplace experience versus employee experience, because they are different things. Um, you're starting to see people with dedicated roles uh, called employee experience and workplace experience. And it um, there's not necessarily um, one department that it is default sitting under, but you're starting to see a pattern in terms of the confluence of folks. So IT uh, plays a role in it. In terms of employee experience, a lot of people are really thinking about the digital touch points of the employee. So naturally, if they're over-indexing, not necessarily over-indexing, but if they're heavily indexed on um, digital, then you're seeing a lot of IT employees starting to move into employee experience. Um, we see some people coming out of facilities management, which is traditionally real estate. We see um, HR is heavily involved and you have some people moving into employee experience from HR if they're thinking of it from kind of that lens. So um, it's really not a profession and a kind of established role, which is what we find most 
um, exciting about it. There's it's being written and you can have a lot of influence on kind of, um, I mean, you remember what HubSpot did with regards to inbound marketing and kind of how much influence they had in, in kind of creating that concept and more broadly what digital marketing, the skills were required, how you resource it, you know, how you certify and train up and uh, develop people in that space and, you know, really what the craft became. Um, employee experience is very similar, which is uh, for someone like us, um, you know, it's exciting to be kind of in category creation space. That's exactly what I was going to say. You're creating a category here. And I would imagine that the establishment of a category like that will depend on some very successful examples, companies who have, you know, fundamentally changed the way they operate around employee experience and engagement and using, you know, data and analytics out of tenant experience to be able to make that happen. Are you seeing industries, sectors, or specific companies who are really like, hey, this is a game changer for us. We're going to embrace this and go all in on it and figure out how to fundamentally change the way not only we, you know, use this and approach it, but use it in a way that's going to help us attract and retain more talent, better talent, the best talent. Yeah, it's a it's definitely large employers are all in. Um, and they're all in and they're also all pretty quick to admit they're flying somewhat blind, right? Um, the amount of conversations I have with um, uh, large, it's that Fortune 1000 in terms of not just returning folks to office, but how the workplace touches everything from an employee experience. And then how do they need to think of employee experience when it's not within their controlled physical environment, but via digital tools? Um, it's definitely a top of market thing. And what I, where I, what I think is fascinating is the opportunity for entrepreneurs to think about, and this is, um, not uncommon in a lot of categories, but how do you take um, a category that's new, like employee experience, and where you have the Fortune 1000 that have tons of people and resources to throw at these problems? What are the products and tools that are going to come out of this that kind of enters into the mid-market and you know the SMB piece of the market? Because employee experience is something that um, for mid-market and downstream, you don't have that in budget. So what are the, I think there's going to be some pretty interesting products and services that come out of this that start to bring it downstream. Um, because talent is critical for any business. It doesn't matter how big you are. Um, but it's definitely starting in the enterprise for sure. And probably a lot of services businesses that can be built off the back of this type of kind of platform that you're creating here where companies might not have that ability native, but they're going to need to be able to, you know, bring in expertise to show them the way to do that. You know, whether you guys have a services business or there are consultancies that really build on top of your platform, you know, you mentioned HubSpot before and inbound marketing and, you know, what you guys are building could be a platform that, you know, has much much broader application on top of it, right? As an operating system. Yeah, we're very much um, early in the journey, but we view kind of the North Star is exactly what you're talking about in terms of whether it's HubSpot, Workday, Salesforce, 
Um, uh, the goal is we think there's going to be a litany of different types of businesses built kind of within that realm of employee experience. So um, additional technology tools that are um, niche and specialized uh, for, say, different industry verticals where the employee experience is markedly um, uh, dependent on kind of the specifics of that that type of business. Um, lots of services businesses. One of the things that we see, particularly in commercial real estate um, and for large employers uh, and as well as owners of, of property is it's really hard to be successful with technology when there isn't a lot of um, skill sets in-house that have been successful with certain types of technology. So there's going to be a lot of services and consulting businesses that need to be built up um, in order for, for the technology to get the ROI. So um, it's still super early uh, in terms of this category, but um, that that's where we see it going for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, with the war for talent, that will only become more and more, you know, acute and pronounced over time. It's not about throwing foosball tables and kombucha on tap and cold brew and free food at people. It's really about creating spaces and places where they can thrive and grow and function properly. And, you know, where their real world experiences that, you know, ultimately lead to more meaningful connections between people. Right. That's really what it's what it's all about. If I think of, you know, what you're doing at HQO, but also what you did at America Dino and Bostino beforehand, you know, you were building um, things that um, helped people connect um, and create community. Right. Um, how did you is that something you've always kind of naturally done? Um through, you know, not just these two companies, but kind of prior to that kind of, how did you end up being someone who's kind of doing this with two companies? Um, I, my wife would say a dog chasing cars, but, um, <laughs> I, we, we didn't let my, like my co-founders and I didn't initially see the, the kind of theme that you just pointed out, which is definitely, um, uh, it certainly is the theme of what we've built to date. And I think we have now in hindsight and uh, as you know, we've been doing this for give or take 15 years, we've seen that I think our passion lies in community and bringing people together, um, specifically bringing people together to work on something like we enjoy building and creating. And um, obviously we think uh, building businesses and uh things that roll up to economic progress are great for society and um, are a good thing. So I think that's kind of naturally our, our passion point. Um, I've been, uh, I've been spending a ton of time reading uh, every year. I read Jim Collins books between good to great and built to last. And he talks about the, the kind of triangle of what your passion is, uh, finding the right economic engine or business model and then mirroring it with um, what you can be the best in the world at. And I think uh, the DNA of our team in terms of the passion is really around community. Um, our skill set uh, tends to be in this kind of unique space of connecting uh, business and consumer B2B to C. So um, we've dabbled in uh, engaging the end user and the consumer and uh all the businesses that we've been in. So when you think about the end user of the workplace, that's the consumer. 
Um, but you have to think about the objectives of the employer and the landlord and ultimately how those two come together. So um, our skill set tends to, um, in a lot of really nuanced ways across the core team, um, fit that model pretty well for a lot of different reasons. But um, that's kind of how we landed in that. And I've, you know, I've always, um, I was always more interested in um, building and selling things than I was in going to class. So um, I started, uh, I, I come from um, on my father's side, a, a family of entrepreneurs. So his dad came over um, to the U.S., started a business. My dad started businesses. So I think that's just uh, part of the DNA. I started my first one in middle school. So I've always enjoyed um, kind of entrepreneurial pursuits. And then I convinced some people who are smarter than me um, to forego secondary schooling. And, you know, my technical co-founder was going to go to med school. And I said, who wants to take seven years of debt when you could start something with me? Um so that's still the best sale I've ever made in my career. Dog chasing cars. Right? <laughs> yeah. I always dogs chasing cars are always really happy, by the way. Yeah. So there's you know, I enjoy I enjoy what I do. Nothing wrong with being a dog chasing cars, right? Yeah. Um yeah. it's interesting too when I look at the two companies with American Inno and HQO, you've had this um kind of overarching view of many, many different industries um and many different sectors all at the same time, which has got to be pretty fascinating. And you've worked with, you know, Fortune 500, Global 1000, all the way down to, you know, the the seediest of seed stage startups, um, yeah. if it's fair to put it that way. You've probably mm -hmm. seen um, some very consistent themes and keys to success across teams and companies that um, have informed, you know, not only how you operate, but also how you think. What are some of the keys to success you see again and again that you can put your finger on and say, you know, a company has to have this to win. And if they don't, they're not going to go anywhere. Yeah, I think um, one of the fascinating things in terms of that range, because I have certainly been in that that corner of seediest of CD startups. Um, and I've uh, we sell into some of the largest enterprises in the world. And what's funny is a lot of, a lot of people talk about how different they are. Um, and there certainly are, uh, significant differences and particularly for the people needed, uh, for different types of companies. But the, the common thread on success tends to be around, um, focus a hundred percent. Uh, it doesn't matter how big you are, um, in terms of, really knowing what your competency is, aligning that competency with the types of people um, that will make you best in class in that, and then obviously uh, figuring out how to how to get them the resources needed. It's, a, it's consistent with the two to three person company working out of the garage, the cliche scenario, uh, all the way up to some of our clients that are employing over 100,000 people globally. Um, so the focus piece has been fascinating to see. And obviously it manifests in different ways when you're a three person company and it's pretty, um, pretty obvious if they're focusing on things that uh, they can't resource against. It takes a little bit longer to figure out with a hundred thousand person company because they, you know, on, on the surface have a abundance of resources and the PowerPoint decks always look good. Um, where where the focus is going to fall down um 
but you can start to see it particularly over time when you can pattern match um, and you you hear from a number of them. So uh, I've been fascinated with studies of focus, um, both organizationally across groups of people, but also down to the individual level. Um, like the New Yorker had a phenomenal piece a while back in terms of the the war on focus and like everything in our lives that makes it tremendously difficult to focus. Um, and human resiliency is a fascinating thing. The explosion of meditation and stuff like that. Um, I think it's easy to kind of mock like, you know, millennials and their meditation and stuff like that. But obviously it's, um, demand is in response to something. And I think the response is that, um, the challenge, uh, of focus, uh, in the world that we live in with technology and everything around us. So, um, focus is certainly a critical piece of it. And then the other theme I would say across, um, both is, uh, that kind of plays off of focus is, um, ultimately iteration, right. Um, and how, uh, companies iterate, um, everything moves so fast now. Um, and it's certainly not, it's not going to get any slower in terms of the pace of business. So how you kind of institutionalize, how you iterate and continue to kind of move at the pace that business needs to move at. Um, it's fascinating to watch how, how different groups of people uh, build iteration into their models. And um, it tends to be paired with um, truth and honesty, vigorous debate about what, what not might be broken today, but what are the assumptions that things are going to be working and what would cause those things to stop working, say a global pandemic. Um, the groups that are like very proactive about how they build in models um, and frameworks for iteration and um, predicting uh, scenarios that they can't predict. I think um, you start to see a lot of success being tied to folks that at least think in that manner. I'm a big believer that, you know, both focus and iteration, as you've talked about here, um, really require clarity of uh, purpose, clarity of vision, clarity of mission, um, understanding the strategy of where you're headed, why you're doing it and how you're going to get there. You know, the strategy probably shouldn't change all that often, but the tactics can iterate. And within that, you know, you can kind of, you know, chop and change um, as needed, particularly, you know, when speed of business, speed of change is moving pretty quickly, right? But I think, you know, understanding that you've got a clear focus, a clear mission, a clear purpose um, allows you to um, have tighter focus and have the freedom to iterate and move. If you don't have those things, you're kind of out there kind of making it up, it seems, almost every day, if not every hour. And you get whiplash, right? Um, and I think that's the most frustrating thing for um, employees and people when leadership can't make up their mind. Um, and it's hard, right? Particularly when you're in a um, an environment like COVID where, you know, 30 days into COVID, Zuckerberg and uh, Dorsey and all the big tech CEOs come out and say, remote is the future. It's we've in in mere 30 days, we have seen the future and the way we work is going to be completely different. And then if you follow the money 
Facebook bought REI's campus and headquarters up in Seattle. They took a full lease of the Farley building in New York City. They spent more money on real estate than anybody else. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's understandable in a pandemic where there's, um, particularly in the media environment that we live in now, where you have to think of the most sensational scenario in order to reach an audience that people can get pulled towards many different shiny objects, business strategies and things like that tend to be like diets, they're fads, right? So um, discipline around maintaining really clear, you know, starting with purpose, what the mission is and how this strategy informs those things. I think it's super hard, but you're right. That's the, um, and it takes courage when, I don't know, uh, <laughs> a scenario like a global pandemic comes up and everybody is coming out and, reinventing you know many different aspects of the world allegedly yeah particularly you know in an era um that we'll all be living in for many years where black swans aren't uncommon anymore right they're going to be mm -hmm. almost as we expect much much more frequent to see in the pond right so if you go to the public garden there'll probably be black swans there um <laughs> more frequently right um mm -hmm. you know you talked about focus and um prioritization and things like that how do you as a entrepreneur a co-founder a ceo a parent, a husband manage to stay focused? How do you kind of stay disciplined and um, have personal habits that allow you to do that? I'm obsessed by the kind of topic of executive athletes and personal habits, um, inspiration, purpose, mission, and how we all the, apply them to ourselves. Yeah, I'm it's for I love the term executive athlete. Um, I've uh, the way that I think about. You know, people call it work-life balance, which I don't agree with the term kind of generally in terms of like work is a part of your life, right? So like work and life being separate doesn't make any sense to me. Um, but when you think about the approach to work and family and all these things, anyone who played sports, there's something uh, incredibly um powerful about the cadence of how teams work um, everything from preseason to practice to games to off-season rest and recovery right and i don't think enough businesses apply the concepts of sports to ultimately how you operate it's kind of monday through friday you know you work and we have these kind of ongoing goals and when you start to pull it apart you know, I, I think of, um, I think in kind of tiers from a time frame perspective, I've got a 10 year kind of, um, where do you want to be in 10 years from a business perspective in terms of what you're building towards? I actually map it out across both business and all kind of life goals. So I've got work goals, I've got family goals, I've got th things like that, because I think you've got one life with, you know, different different competing priorities and you do need to prioritize against those and map your time based off of priority. And then I break it down into shorter time frames. but the atomic unit of it for me is really the week, right? Like you get a week and can you make measurable progress in that kind of atomic unit of the bigger picture? And so I try to map frameworks out against, you know, if I say these are my priorities in life, am I putting my time against those priorities in a way that makes sense? 
So if you're saying something is number one, but you only do two hours a week against it, that doesn't make sense. Um, and then I'm in terms of habit development, uh, I've, I'm relatively obsessive about the study of habit development and probably the best book I've read is Atomic Habits, um, which I think is pretty popular at this point. But how do you apply some of those tactics to those life priorities? And I very much think about it in terms of similar to kind of a sports schedule, which is, do you have dedicated time and how do you build um, the pre like the habit of practice, right? So a lot of us just do our jobs. And if you're a basketball player, which I played basketball in college, you don't just play a game every day, right? You practice your craft, you work on different elements of your game, offensive fundamentals, Yep. Right. So, and when you look at guys like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, like these, even if you read the book Grit, uh, one of the chapters is about the uh, editor of cartoons, I believe, believe at the New Yorker and how he developed his craft. Um, the people who I think we all emulate and like want to be like, they have such nuanced understanding of every little element of what goes into being say a great basketball player same thing in terms of your day job you know it's not just about what's the latest strategy that a company is doing but if you break down the things that you do during game time right um the nuances of a one-on-one -on -one meeting how do you read body language um how do you empathize like the things that go into a game and what you consider your game how do you practice and build up the skill to continue to get better at those elements? If you're a salesperson, um, it's little things like pre-meeting prep. So how are you getting better at the research that you do on the client? Like I could go through a million examples, but how do you dedicate time to practice? And then how do you dedicate time to the game, which I think a lot of people focus on the game piece of it. Um, and then when you think about like off season, how do you recharge? And, you know, I think the intention of the term work life balance is to make sure that you're optimizing your energy for output, which makes sense. Um, but everybody's wired differently. So how do you uh, understand your own battery, right? Um, and maximize, you know, what you're able to do from kind of an output perspective. So I think about that in terms of weak cadences. And then at the end of each quarter, I try to tweak the model of the, the week in order to continue to learn, iterate, and get better on it. What days your week start? Um, I start every week, Monday morning. I'm not a Sunday person. Um, although my Sunday routine, I, there's something for me uh, in terms of starts and finishes. I'm somebody that loves to start and finish. I always want to be my best at the start and at the finish. Um, so the idea of on Sunday, I always have a time block where I do a bunch of things so that Monday morning when I'm started, I don't feel like I'm digging out of debt, right? So um, Sunday for me is always work in preparation of the week for Monday, but I start in my head day one of the week is Monday. So it's your warm up in a way, right? So you're, you're not starting cold on Monday. You're warmed right. up. You know also what you have to do. Sports thing, right? There yeah. you go. Yeah. Routines, habits, um, are one thing I hear about all the time, uh, from kind of successful executive athletes. Um, and particularly the, the flip side of that is when they don't have a routine, they fall apart. 
which is, Mm -hmm. you know, very similar to athletes in a lot of ways. Another thing I hear about a lot is um, the need for coaching and mentoring. Um, What do you do about that? Um, It's evolved over my career. So um, I have had numerous um, both formal and informal um, coaches, if you will. Um, I have always had, I'm a, I, I try to pride myself on being student of the game. Um, very similar to the example of, you know, if you, if you've studied somebody like Kobe Bryant, he was obsessed with Michael Jordan, right? Obsessed. So I have people that I kind of look at where I say, like, I think from a profile of work, we probably are similar and that's somewhere I could, if I put in the work, I could get to that type of um, performance level. So I've done a lot of studying on my own of people, even just locally in say the Boston community, guys like Brian Halligan, CEO of HubSpot, David Cancel, CEO of Drift, David Sachs, who did Yammer. And um, I'm a fan of these folks. Two of those three, I know a little bit, but not super well. Um, and then I've, I've done the um, CEO peer group, which um not the, not a not a mainstream take, but I hate CEO peer groups. CEOs sitting around complaining about CEOs to me is bullshit. Um, it's like woe is me. I mean, I actually learn a lot more um, from spending time with people who have no clue what it is I work on and do. I think it helps create empathy in those things. So, um, any problem a CEO has in a CEO peer group is not that big of a problem. Um, but I tend to look at people who are further ahead, right? Like people who have done it that are better. Um, you're not chasing the people that are on your level, right? So, um, and then I'm, you know, I'm starting to get into more formal training programs and things like that. Not necessarily directly just for me, although I've done those as well, but um, programs that coach executive teams, I think that's kind of an underrated concept of coaching team-based uh, within businesses. Um, so I spend a ton of time on kind of thinking through six to 12 month time blocks of who can coach, what is what is ultimately the outcome of education in terms of where we are right now in my career individually, but where we are as a company that we're going to make the most ground in terms of the format of how we continue to get coached and get better. And I think that naturally changes over the evolution of a career and a company's life cycle. That's fantastic. And as you, you know, you've mentioned a lot of names of leaders, books, um, and other kind of media, as we've talked about that, what are the things that you go back to kind of in your week, your atomic week, every week that you read and listen to and make sure that you don't miss who are some of the people, accounts, names, media, things like that? Yeah. So, um, I'm in, in a bit of a unique time in that I quit all social media. Um, so I used to be obsessed with Twitter. I followed every single, CEO, commercial real estate, venture, private equity, M&A, world news, all those things. Um, and during the pandemic, I, I completely purged. Um, I became obsessive about COVID data. You know, my wife, Jess, uh, she was like, enough. I had spreadsheets on COVID data in terms of I wanted to understand uh, every nuance of it. And I was like, you know what? I probably need to go on detox here. Um 
as you also know, I was living with my my in-laws during the pandemic. So um, I needed a hobby and that became it. And I was like, I'm not sure that this is necessarily the most uh, useful way to spend my time. Um, so I've purged from all social media and I do the kind of major like Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, things like that. Um, but in terms of information, I've very much started to view it similar to food where I'm trying to get really high quality information, less about the urgent and now, which is, you know, the equivalent of sugars and fat and, uh, things that are poor for your diet. I think information is very similar, um, where a lot of people are eating from McDonald's all day, uh, in terms of the information they get. So, I'm heavily focused on books and things that are tried and true and have kind of uh, made it through the test of time rather than, I think, the nonsense that we're inundated with every day. It's fascinating. Some more kind of nutrition um, than snacking, if you will. And the snacking seems to be what a lot of people are doing, which is, you know, unhealthy yep. and ultimately leads to bigger problems long term. Right. And super addictive. Super addicting. I can see that. I can see that. I'll, uh, you know, I have some of the same issues there, um, but I'll try to avoid the COVID data and the COVID spreadsheets at all costs. I think that's yeah, I'll when, just send you mine if you really want it. Yeah, exactly. That's when I know. That's when I know to go check myself in. Um, <laughs> amazing, amazing. Well, Chase, this has been incredible to hear about, particularly um, you know your own habits and your own journey that you've gone through, in addition to the great things that you guys are building at HQO. Um, you're certainly, as I said before, an agent of innovation. It's been an honor to have you on the podcast and to get to know you better. Yeah, thanks so much. This has been a blast and uh, I'm super appreciative for the opportunity. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, bud. See ya. See ya. Hey, this is Dave Kinise, the host and creator of the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode and please reach out if I can help you. You can get me at dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. Again, dk at agentsofinnovation.dk. Thanks again for listening.